0: As doctors of what I call proper healthcare, and certainly as chiropractors, our mission is big and bold. Our nation and the world requires leadership when confronting the pandemic of metabolic derangement, which leads to degenerative disease and poor health. Masses of people around the globe will never know what it feels like to have boundless energy, unlimited potential, and true health independence into their senior years. Join me in my quest to bring together the best practices to make you a leader in your community. My question to the entire profession is, if not now, when? If not us, who? Hey everyone, this is Dr. Stephen Janopoulos. We're going to be having a discussion today again with Dr. Chris Turnpaw, who is going to be a regular on this show for the weeks to come and for the months and hopefully years to come. You might even consider him kind of a co-host Dr. Chris brings to the table, for those of you who know him, he brings to the table a level of understanding of the human body that's unparalleled. And he has a practice that really just in- informs us all so much because of the volume that they actually do. He also uh, will make an offer at the end of this podcast. Listen to it the whole way through because there's so much good information. It's, we start off a little bit with the COVID-19 stuff and understanding antibodies, but then we really get into metabolic health, where we're going after this, why your patients and why our profession is just going to explode after this crisis is over because people are going to see that there's a lot that they need to do for their own health. And Chris really just brings great perspective to that. But towards the end, he makes an, he tells us about an event that had to be canceled, but will be rescheduled in Allenberry, uh, uh, Pennsylvania, um, that is just going to be a, a can't-miss opportunity for the doctors who want to learn more and as chris says for doctors who want to know more tomorrow than they know today so it doesn't matter what your starting point is the offer that he makes is incredible i'm going to be there for sure he's going to be there and his whole team so enjoy enjoy the podcast all right hey what's up chris Hello, <laughs> all is good all is good all right so so dr chris trampaud uh We were just talking a little bit about some of the work you've been doing during this this COVID crisis Um, in your office. You were able to get some kits to do some serum testing for antibodies. Bring bring our our audience up to speed on what that even means and why you would do that in your practice.
1: Okay, great question. So the antibody testing, a lot of controversy about it. I've heard a lot of people, even at the high level government uh, level, saying There's no antibody testing. There's no antibody testing. First of all, there is antibody testing. So what an antibody is, is it is your immune system's ability to recognize a pathogen or uh, an invader in your body so it can memorize it, tag it, and have more efficient destruction of it. So when you have an antibody to a virus or a bug or a bacteria, you become much more efficient at it. And then you also will develop a tighter or immunity to that bug for the amount of time that you have the antibody. So I laid the groundwork there. So uh, antibodies look like an upside down. Why? But when I teach this is my antibody because it goes out and attacks things. So if you have an antibody to a bug, it makes it more efficient at attacking that bug. Now what it doesn't do is it doesn't attack other bugs. It only is specific to one bug. So, um, we have antibody testing to covid-19 there are 13 companies on the fda's website that do antibody testing for covid-19 now they're they're used in what's called an eua or emergency use authorization and the reason for that is we don't have a 3-year retrospective study on studying antibodies to COVID-19 because we haven't even known about this thing for three years. So we don't have that ability to recognize what this means. What we do have is the antibody. So think of the bug, the virus, um, and we look at little pieces of it. And every piece of the bug you can develop an antibody to. So you don't develop an antibody to the entire bug, you develop it to a piece of the bug. Now you might have a little piece of that bug and you develop an antibody to that. And then the next piece should develop an antibody too. The next piece should develop an antibody too. So the more antibodies that you find positive to the bug, the more likely it is you can attack that entire bug. The reason that that is important is this little piece of COVID-19, although it is on COVID-19, may also be on a common cold. So they're both coronaviruses. So you can get a this piece that exists on both bugs. So you might have one antibody, but it's not because you saw COVID-19. It's because you saw something that looked a lot like it. So the more pieces of the puzzle, or if we use the puzzle example, one piece of the puzzle might be identical in two puzzles, but it's a completely different puzzle. So what we don't know is how many antibodies you need to have to confirm that you have seen the COVID-19 bug uh, virus. Um, but the antibodies are out there. So there's different tests out. Some are testing two, some are testing three. There's one company that's testing four, hopefully soon to go to six. So the more uh, antibodies you have, the more likely it is you're going to see uh, or have seen that.
0: I'm sorry, Chris, the, the more different antibodies you have, in other words, the more uh, antibodies you have to the different pieces or the actual volume of antibodies?
1: And, and d- does volume matter? Volume matters, uh, but right, it, it will in the future. Right now, what matters is a detectable threshold. So we are now looking at that as positive or negative. I think the future will yield levels because I make this antibody army, and I might make 1,000 army men to it Right during a recent attack I mount up my army against this virus and over time the army goes away and you'll keep one or two army men around. They're called memory B cells. You'll keep them around a very high titer or a very high antibody load may reflect a recent infection or an unresolved infection. Um, So the volume will matter. But right now the most important thing is do you have that army to something to something you've never seen before. So there's really no reason to have four antibodies to something you've never seen before so that would be unique a unique army so we're looking for that and, and trying to figure out those who may have been infected before and resolved
0: all right so now explain why that is even desirable why 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 do we want that information
1: so the information well let me start by saying because this is where i'm getting in a little bit of hot water with you know state health organizations and so forth, is they're saying there's no antibody testing. There is antibody testing. What it means, we're not sure of yet, or what that level means. But why it's important is, if you have four individualized antibodies to this COVID-19, that would be extremely unique if you had not seen COVID before. So the only way not the only way, but the most probable way to get four antibodies to COVID-19 would be as if you were infected by COVID-19. And so what we're seeing is people were sick. They weren't tested at all because they didn't meet every single criteria under the sun. So they didn't even test them. So then they resolve. We're not testing youth. We're not testing people that are likely to resolve. We're not testing people if they have every symptom except the fever. So people are being excluded from being tested, and they got really sick, and they got better, and they want to know, did they have it? Because if they had it and they got better, they have now developed immunity to it, and they're unlikely to get reinfected for a period of time, which we don't know what that period of time is yet, but for a period of time, they have immunity, which means they got infected, they resolved, they're able to run into COVID and not get infected again.
0: And and that period of time could be a, a, a short period of time. It could be forever. We, we we don't know, right? It could be a lifetime. So, for example, if you had those little memory B cells you were talking about, if I had uh, the chickenpox when I was seven, I got a couple of those running around, making sure that if I see the chickenpox again, that it it's targeted. It's like a sniper is there to just isolate that one virus. Okay. Now, uh, when it comes to the the antibodies, so. My understanding is that if we took uh, 3,000 people in a metropolitan area that have absolutely no symptoms at all, and 50% of them have four antibodies, meaning they've seen this thing before, or 2% have four antibodies, that's meaningful because we want to make a decision as to whether or not we can go back to work if 50% have those four antibodies, we're closer to this herd immunity idea where the, the virus kind of stops finding people to infect. But if it's 2%, well, then shit, we, we got a long, a long run of infections to come. Is that correct?
1: That is correct. And so th- the,
0: the question
1: is, who to this point, who's safe to go back out? Who's safe to to re-enter the workforce? Uh, Who's safe to go out? Who's safe on the the front line? Who's safe? Who has developed immunity? And how many people have been infected? I'm going to digress for a second. I had a patient come in yesterday, and his daughter was in Spain with four other girls. They had to come home. She was sick, and one of the other girls was sick. They had to go to mandatory quarantine in a cabin in New Hampshire for 14 days. Two of them were very sick. One of the girls' fathers worked for the Department of State. So they said, You got to get her tested. So she tested positive for COVID, okay, uh, as a, a young 20 year old. She was living with these four girls. She was quarantined in the same bedroom with these four girls. So they tested the other three. One had the same exact symptoms. All of the others, tested negative to COVID, but they all were exposed to COVID. And the question becomes, how many false negatives do we get with the testing we're doing now, which some are saying is 70% effective and some are saying is 30% effective. So that means we're missing between 30 and 70% of the positives. Let's put that out there. But if we did antibody testing on those four, then it's very likely that we would see all of them have developed immunity to that and all of them have resolved and all of them were infected and resolved and are now safe because they have titers or antibodies against this.
0: All right, so in that situation, that helps us understand uh, who has resolved immunity. They might not, you know, the, the other kind of testing, they would have to be shedding virus. Uh, and so if they're not shedding virus and they developed immunity, that test is going to be negative, or they do have it and they are shedding, but the test is a false negative. Okay. So false positives are far worse than false negatives because false positives uh, will send somebody out into the world feeling safe and then they might have an issue. Right A false negative means you're positive When it shows negative And then you can go hurt people Or if it's a false positive You can think you're safe And then you can hurt yourself <laughs> Right Alright so Now, now alright so these are four 20 year olds
1: Right Four 20 year olds they got it They resolved no big deal uh they resolved but they're not going into in they only tested this one girl because her father worked for the department of state and they required her to be tested so we can get away from the privilege class conversation but we can just say why shouldn't we test anybody who's sick to see how many people are getting this and if they got it and feel better we have to we don't even have to do the antibody testing although we should to confirm immunity and length of immunity to it. But if you got sick and resolved, the reason you resolved is you developed antibodies to it.
0: Now, what if you did not get sick and resolved and developed antibodies to it? So, so the, the antibody testing really should be the, the big push for it, again, in, in the conversation about getting back to work. Because let, let, let's just be realistic here. I mean, the, in New York State, the governor just said uh, May 15th. You know, you, you, I don't know. Let's just put it this way. Also, the the draconian uh, go- governor in, in Michigan made some crazy statements and that got people to say, you know what? Screw this. I'm going out. So it had a reverse effect. You know, the the American feeling of, you know, anti-government uh, is it, it, it's going to how many weeks can can we do this? You know? So so if we're gonna do antibody testing, we need to know in a metropolitan area, the people who have no symptoms, how many, what percentage have antibodies? We should be focusing the antibodies on people who have no symptoms whatsoever, so we can get an idea of how close we are to herd immunity.
1: Correct. Well, and and to that, there's a lot of people that are gonna try and tear this argument apart.
0: But let's say
1: Dr. Janopoulos shows up, never got sick, he has four antibodies, and they're going to say, well, that doesn't mean he got the COVID. My argument's going to be, maybe he didn't get COVID-19, but he already has immunity to it for whatever miraculous reason. So maybe he got four different viruses in the past, and each one of them yielded a COVID-19 antibody, even though he didn't see COVID-19. He's already got built-in immunity without ever seeing COVID. What it means if you have all four antibodies is you're protected. I don't care how you got there. If a Martian gave you the antibodies, it doesn't matter. The fact is you're immune and you're able to go forward. And there is some critical thinking that would say maybe some of these antibodies were developed by previous exposure to other viruses that carried similar proteins. So I already have somewhat of an immunity to it without ever seeing it which is the body's innate brilliance. Like I'm going to develop an antibody that's going to attack more than the one thing it's designed to It's going to attack things that are like
0: so similar coronaviruses, just like sometimes you get the flu and it sucks to get the flu. But the good news about getting the flu is you might be immune for the next four or five years to the different strains that 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 come by. And that's, of course, the argument that's going to be made for the vaccine that, yeah, this is different, uh, which, you know, this is different, but get it because it'll protect you from other ones, that type type of a thing. But really,
1: that's, that, that, I don't want to, go to, I don't want to, that's absolutely ridiculously false because they micromanage. It's, it's a micromanagement of this one particular piece. I, I'm convinced they're not going to come up with a vaccine or if they do, they're going to be lying to us. And I'll tell you why. They didn't come up with one for SARS-1. That was 18 years ago. They're not coming up with, and if they do... You better have some reservation. Why couldn't they come up with one for, for SARS one? Why couldn't they come up for MARS? Why couldn't they come up with one for Ebola? Why can't they come up for one for for uh, HIV? If they come up with one now, you got to say it's got to be a revolutionary technology because they couldn't do it for anything like this in the past. And if they can do it for this, they should be able to do one for the common cold. They should be able to do. Like, it's ridiculous.
0: And, and there's never been a, a vaccine for a, a coronavirus if I'm hmm. a commercially available vaccine for a coronavirus. So be beware of that. Cause right, right now what you're seeing is people saying, Oh, just get the vaccine already. So I, I can feel safe. I mean, that's really what they're saying. And, and it's, it's kind of like the ultimate placebo.
1: Here's my other question. If, if, These are big ifs, like leaps over the Grand Canyon. But if we came up with a vaccine, and it was effective, and it was safe, those are huge leaps, like to the moon and back. If that was the case, what happens the next coronavirus outbreak, which is going to happen in the next five to 10 years, we're going to have another coronavirus. So what do we do? We quarantine for 18 months until we come up with another vaccine? Like, that's ridiculous. Here's my approach. Get your antibody test. See if you're converted, which means you have IgG antibodies. The more you have, the better. If you have four to the four different pieces, great. When we develop six, great. You know, for the Lyme disease testing, Western Blot, we have a bunch of them, all of that. So it, it, we take into account what what may be working, what require, is required to have immunity. Those are conversations down the road. How many of these do you need to be immune? Is it one? Is it two? Is it three? Do you need all four? We don't know because we don't have the retrospect retrospective studies yet. But let's start down that pathway. And by the way, what are you going to do to get healthy and stay healthy for the next? So the kind of, we were talking a little bit earlier before the show, what do you do? What's, what's, what's the mechanism of health? Like what we do in our office, how do you get healthy and stay healthy for whatever comes down the pike rather than developing just a specific immunity to a specific virus? Why don't you develop a global immunity to global viruses, global bi- global bugs?
0: Stop right there. All right, because we're, we're, we're going to go down that road right now. But first, I want to I want to know. So, what what qualifies you to have this conversation? Who who is Chris Turnpaw?
1: <laughs> well, that's a good question. I'm still trying to figure that out. Um, so. Uh, I have studied for 25 years, uh, intensely probably the past 10, the immune system, uh, lectured all over the country. I have lectured with Dr. Johnny, who's one of the foremost immunologists in the world. I've published a paper. We're in the process of publishing another paper on antibody, specifically how antibodies are working in the body to specific things. Um, We also have a practice where we're put on the forefront of a lot of this testing so we can be a beta site tester. So I'm talking to people who are working with the FDA, people who are working with the labs to say, what does this test mean? They're asking for my clinical input as to what does this test actually show? How do we get this marketed? What What, what is the meaning of this test? Because we are an office on the front line that is getting patients with symptoms without symptoms, looking at their labs, and then putting it into the, into the interpretation bank. And, and I'm on that panel
0: as to what does this mean? All right. So so you you, you, ha- you have some force behind the... Uh...
1: A little. It's not the letters behind my name. It's the knowledge in my head, right? The, the people that I've worked with. And by the way, I've been very blessed, I, I would say, because I've been able to work with some of the people I've been able to work with.
0: And, all right, so that... I, I kind of want to go a little deeper into you and your, into you, but also your, your practice and how unique it is because your practice for for people who are natural healthcare providers, for people who are chiropractors, for people who are, who understand and recognize that there's a functional nutritional approach to life that, that, you know, uh, nutrition brings with it a whole, a whole host of, of uh, benefits. And that's something that your practice has really been on the forefront of Tell us a little bit about your practice and 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 I think it's important to mention the volume of work that your 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 practice does and why that's important.
1: Well, you know, it started as a solo practice, as you know, it was just me. And uh, using the methodology that I put together, I call it the Turnpon Method only because I don't know what else to call it. So um, put together a methodology to look at the body as a whole, how the body's functioning, what may be um, altered or off, and then how do we go about kind of correcting that and fixing that? That's kind of the big 80,000 foot view. Uh, from there, we started getting sick people well, and we started getting well people weller, even though it's not a word, better. And so, uh, improving their health, improving their function, um, not one piece at a time, but globally. Uh, so, not one variable, one manipulative, one isolated double-blind, placebo-controlled, one variable. We're doing multiple variables at the same time because that's kind of how life works. You don't manipulate one thing at a time. Uh, I would frequently talk about when you drive a car, you don't listen and then shut your hearing off and then see and then shut your eyesight down and then put your foot on the gas pedal and then take it off and then turn the steering wheel. Everything has to function together. It's multimodal. Everything works together. So we don't, that's not how the human body works. It works, it works together. It doesn't work one system at a time. So looking at that global approach and then working with patients and then realizing there's an unbelievable need that people are searching for to get well and stay well. So from there, I had a very long, I worked long hours, but I still had a a long wait list, two-year wait list to get in, which is not a badge of courage. It's a badge of we're not helping the people that need help. So we started to reach out. And since the time fast forward, we now have 11 providers um, in our office seeing uh, over 100 100 new patients a month, every month, um, with many different health concerns from I'm pretty healthy, but I want to stay healthy. I'm 55. I want to be healthy when I'm 85 to people coming in saying I've been everywhere and I don't feel good. So I did it a while ago, about four years ago. I did the statistics, the average patient coming to see me, I was the 12th doctor. They'd seen 11 other physicians and uh, other doctors are not stupid. They're not, they didn't get where they are, but it's the breadth of knowledge and what you see in your office and looking at a little bit critically different. So we were able to do that. And because of that, uh, actually increased or accelerated my learning because I don't think that I have it all figured out. So I was able to now look at 11 different providers bringing me information. Anything that wasn't understood came to a roundtable discussion. we discussed it. I was usually the escalation clause, so they'd bring me a case say, I don't know what's going on here, you figure it out And then I, was, I had the benefit of 10 other providers bringing me cases. We're the largest draw center in the state of Pennsylvania. That's a not a hospital, so we do more blood than anybody except hospitals in the state of Pennsylvania. So that gave me a tremendous learning opportunity um, with breadth of knowledge from breadth of labs to see what's going on.
0: Incredible, and and you know it's funny. The sometimes the word science is used in a very general way, and, and I always a lot of people think doctors are scientists, and they're not. Uh, and, and one of the things I always say is sci- a scientist's job is to be completely detached from their outcome. A scientist's job is to actually come up with an idea of something they think is true and to do everything in their power to be wrong. That's what a scientist does. Doctors are, have somebody in front of them saying, I don't feel good. And the doctor cannot be detached from that outcome. So just they're completely the opposite. And the doctor is heavily invested in the outcome of that patient. So doctors are not scientists, although they are informed by science. And I love that about your practice. And I've spent time there. And one of the best statistics I I, I pulled out of your your office the last time that I was there from, I think think, um, one of your office managers had mentioned that, 50% of the people who come to your office have to travel over two hours to get there. Correct. Still Yeah, and that's absolutely remarkable. And it's a testament to what you guys are doing. But it's because, you know, and again, this goes to the current conversation and current events. Uh, an argument against you, you using uh, hydrochloroquine is that we don't have the double blind control placebo studies to show that it's effective for the COVID-19 virus. Okay, great. But it's a relatively safe drug that's been around for 50 years, and they pop them like M&Ms in certain African countries. Whenever somebody has a fever, they don't even test them for malaria. They just say, here, take it. So you have a relatively safe profile. You have enough data coming from overseas saying, you know, this is a potential benefit here. So for the doctors to use it makes perfect sense. And they're being, they're being clinically informed by what's happening on the ground even though the scientist who's detached and looking you know, to, to be proven wrong doesn't have the data yet. So, so this is where being a doctor and a scientist are completely different. And your practice is one where you apply the art and science of being a doctor first. Uh, and, and that's true, I think, for all of us who are natural healthcare providers.
1: Agreed. And, and to that, if I, if I could marry the scientist and the doctor together is what I would like to say we try to do. So, um, one of the phrases that I say every day in my office, when I'm in my office is do not have a confirmation bias, right? So person walks in, they have X, Y, Z. I know what it is. Do you? Do you really know what it is? Do you have a confirmation bias that that's what it is? And we've kind of done that, by the way, with COVID. You have a fever. You have aches and pains. You feel bad. I have a confirmation bias that is COVID. Or maybe you actually have the flu. Maybe you don't have COVID, right? So we have this confirmation bias. And everybody has a confirmation bias if you go to a, uh, if you go to a Lyme doctor, you have Lyme disease. If you go to a mold doctor, you have mold. They have a confirmation bias that that's what you have based on what's going on. So we don't want to have the confirmation bias. That's the first thing. The second thing is to your conversation. I think doctors, for the most part, they follow a script. They follow a movie script. This is what I was told to do. This is how I was told to do it. This is what's going on. And then the scientists on the other side is they're trying to disprove that They're constantly questioning and challenging If we can marry the two together in a practical way, not in an absolute way, well, the book says I can't do that, so therefore I can't do it. And then, well, this is going on. So, like, to your point of the hydroxychloroquine, there's a county, which I'm not going to mention because I'll get backlash, but it's a local county to me. Not one person has survived in the county when they've gone on a ventilator. Not one. Nobody in that county has come off the ventilator. They've all died. Every single patient who's gone to ventilator has died. And we're saying, oh, but don't use hydroxychloroquine because you might get long QT syndrome. I'm going to die. What are the risk factors that are worse than death? Like, so, and that's a conversation between a patient and a physician. I'm willing to take the risks of an arrhythmia in my heart or something wrong with my heart because the consequence is death. And by the way, it's a death in a room without my family. That I can't have a respectable passing, and my my family's heartbroken. I'm hope I'm dying alone. Like what a miserable, miserable system. So I think we need to marry. I don't have a confirmation bias. I don't know what it is. I'm not sure how to proceed. But every single patient is an educated, well, uh, artful, practiced experiment. It really is. A patient comes to you and you're like, hey, I think this is what's going on, but I'm not sure because I don't have a confirmation bias. I'm willing to be proven wrong. And you've heard me say it. I say it to every new patient. I say, I'm going to make a mistake in this case. I promise you one thing. I'm going to make a mistake. My promise to you is I will quickly try to fix it. I'll quickly try to recognize it first and I'll quickly try to fix it but I don't know how you are going to respond because you are different than the last person. Even if all the blood work numbers are the same, the symptoms are the same, everything looks the same. You're going to respond differently because you're an individual. So I don't want to have a bias that this will work or this won't work because I don't know.
0: Yeah. I think what you're saying also is that you don't guess you, you test and, and testing is important and diagnostics are important. And, you know, just to take it on a very simple level, you know, to, if you want to understand the structural abnormalities of somebody's spine because you're a chiropractor and that's what people come to you for, well, you also want to look at what's going on in their in their chemistry, right? So you want to look at an x-ray and you want to look at a CBC and you want to look at these things to say, well, this is... Not necessarily, you know, bad or good. This is the direction that I see your 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 body going, right? So, if you take an X ray of somebody, you may not see a fracture, but you can see a misalignment, uh, and and you may be able to correct that. And if you do a blood work, you, if you do blood work, you may not see a disease, but you may see things going in a direction that is clearly less healthy. So, so that, that's where the, the doctor has to be trained in science, right? We have to use our scientific understanding of the human body in order to make a clinical decision. Look, if, if, if your choice, if you asked any person in the world, here's your choice. You can get a doctor that graduated in the last 12 months who has far more scientific knowledge than the doctor who graduated 30 years ago. And that, I mean, that goes without saying, if you graduated 12 months ago, your, your breadth of knowledge on science is far greater than the guy who graduated uh, 30 years ago. Now, if your health is in question, which of those two doctors would you like to go to?
1: I'm going to the guy with the 30 years of experience, who, who, let's put a caveat, who continued to learn over his 30 years, right? So if that 30 year practicing doctor never learned or stopped learning when they graduated then i don't want to go to that doctor but most doctors are smart they're brilliant they didn't get to where they are because they're stupid they got there and they continue if they're humble enough to say i learn every day i'm i want to go to the guy with the experience not the one who's read the latest literature and and i have i have been able to be in, you know, somebody graduates 18 months and they think they have it all figured out. I'm like, you don't know anything. Like I I wouldn't, I wouldn't go to me 10 years ago. And I thought it was pretty good. Like, I don't know if I'd go to me five years ago. Like why? I want to continuously, continuously learn. And I think the good, the good doctors and healthcare providers across the the way continue to learn. To parlay on that comment you made about, uh, I started off as a structural doctor, chiropractor, um, and what I was noticing is I was taking the x-rays, doing everything, and I thought I was pretty good at that. Like, I, I didn't think I was bad at that. I didn't, I didn't switch my focus because I sucked at being a chiropractor. That's not the reason I did it. There were There were a subpopulation that I couldn't get better, and I didn't know why. Why does this one not get better when it should? And I would notice they had anemia. They had low vitamin D. They had a thyroid issue. They had the thyroid issue led to weakness, which led to the musculature, not being able to hold the structure, so it wasn't an incompetence of the chiropractic care. It was that it was the chiropractic care wasn't enough to push the body back into normal physiology.
0: And I'd add to that, there was a recognition, I think, by you and also by by the the circles we we, we travel in, that uh, life in the year two thousand twenty is far different than nineteen twenty. And uh, if you had a steak at a restaurant in nineteen twenty. Uh, there was a good chance it was grass-fed, hormone and antibiotic-free and organic. And I guess the idea is that, you know, there's a lot more toxicity in our world and it's affecting the health of the patient walking into the chiropractor's office. And we're asking chiropractors to keep doing what you're doing, what you do with the human spine and, and in, a, in making sure that you're adjusting the cause of interference in the nervous system, recognize that the metabolic health of your patients is far different than the chiropractors who came before you. Uh, And and we're seeing this live in the COVID crisis. Um, I keep doing an analysis on the numbers in New York State. There's a great website where you can see the 10 comorbidities. So uh, if if there's uh, X number of deaths, we know 80% of all deaths in New York City right now have uh, one or more of 10 specific comorbidities. Those comorbidities are obvious, whether it be diabetes, hyperlipidemia, obesity, um, cancer, congestive heart failure, uh, kidney disease. So they list these 10, and what we would consider end-stage diseases. Uh, and 80% of the deaths have one or more of those end-stage diseases. You and I, Chris, are thinking, wow, what if we did an analysis on whose vitamin D is below 50 and on whose vitamin C is this and whose vitamin A is that, and and getting a good understanding of their comorbidity as it relates to uh, suboptimal nutritional health. I think that additional 20% would reveal a lot. I mean, I'm guessing, I don't have the data, but we've been in, in practice long enough to know that somebody who has a vitamin D level sufficient to help the immune system fight whatever it's presented with is going to benefit.
1: Yeah, it's circling back to the chiropractic profession. Um, you know, I, I went to a very fundamentally uh, philosophical school, Life Chiropractic College. And even there, we were taught there are limitations of matter. Or that was the term that was used in our profession. So you can help people, but there are limitations of matter. And I think the limitations we're seeing now, to your point, are the toxicity, the, the burden of, of, of medications in the food supply, the, the, like you said, the antibiotics in the, in the, in the meat industry. So the, we are overburdened to the point where regular, well, I'll just say the, what worked yesterday will not work tomorrow based on the additional burdens we have in the environment. And those burdens have caused insufficiencies in our body. Not to the point of a disease state, maybe, as you refer to vitamin D. It doesn't mean, or let's pick on vitamin C. It doesn't mean you have scurvy, but there's a difference between scurvy and optimal health. There's just You don't have to be dying of scurvy before your body says, I could use a little bit of vitamin C to help me along here. Right? You don't have to have rickets. You don't have to have vitamin D deficiency. of. You don't have to go down to two. There's a difference between optimal and a disease state and most people live in that insufficient state which means they suffer from it's a, it's an ICD10 curve that i created it's called i don't feel gooditis it doesn't really have it's i don't feel gooditis means i'm not at a disease yet but i feel like crap
0: and that code by the way is 0.0000, 000. <laughs> So the, uh, it's funny because from, from the standpoint of being a clinician and seeing people walk in with a level of obesity we haven't seen in, you know, and, and looking at, uh, the, the inflammatory load that people are walking in with. And we're seeing, you know, a virus is supposed to be either incredibly deadly and kill Everyone it infects, and therefore it won't infect a lot of people like Ebola. You know, uh, Ebola infected uh, 400 people in, in uh, 1976, and 80% of them died. And then there's the common cold that goes across the world, and everyone's happy because everyone lives, and, and the virus is happy because it gets to to multiply and and follow Dar- Darwin's plan. But what we have is this hybrid and the hybrid is, uh, is not just from bad luck. It's because it sees an opportunity to spread like wildfire because it's mild in most and to take out people aggressively. And what we're finding, again, with the comorbidities is that, yeah, before the age of COVID-19, you could say, yeah, you know, I got a shitty lifestyle, but, uh, you know, I'm 30 years old and I, I really can't. Think about, you know, all right. If I make these changes in my life, I'll live to to nine, you know, to ninety instead of eighty. Well, I don't care, so I'm not going to do anything. All right, now it's COVID nineteen, and you could die tomorrow. You could you could die tomorrow.
1: It, it is so important. Um, maybe later we'll touch on gain of function testing that they did to make this virus. I'm just going to throw that softball out to you. Because I'm losing my mind, all this research I'm doing, I'm like, listen, this is. We'll talk about that. It's not a conspiracy. It's actually, in fact, but we have a virus that is, uh, let's just say, more transmissible and deadlier than we're used to. I don't even want to put it in than we've ever seen. I don't want to, but it's more than we're used to, obviously, because we're not used to shutting down the entire world for a period of time. So what's the best thing for this? Waiting for a vaccine, waiting for a drug. I, I, people have asked me, thousands and thousands of people have asked me, what should I do? And so I've tried to put out information. And I put out a couple things that I think increase your probability to resolve from this virus faster and more efficiently than others. i kind of choose my words very carefully there. So it's not to say you're not going to get sick. It's not to say this is going to cure you. It's not going to say this is going to prevent you. This is to say this is going to give you a better probability to have better body armor against the virus and recover quickly if you get the virus, right? So, and I can list all those out, but my patients come in and they say, what should I be doing? And I say, this and this and this and this, or I say, could you be doing this and this and this and then also maybe this and this and this and maybe this and this and this and this. I'm already doing all that. Like, yes, because we have a model in our office to get you as healthy as we can keep you as healthy as you can. So that the next boogeyman that comes down the street, you're prepared for it. It it, it blows my mind. One of the docs in my office, Dr. Shannon Smith, you know as well. um, He was saying, we, we just got to put the message out that health of the host matters most. And I'm like, that is our message. He goes, but nobody knows that. So I started talking about it. I'm like, that makes sense. So if you're going to get something that causes a ton of inflammation, wouldn't it be better to start with less inflammation when you begin with? So if you're going to go out in the sun for eight hours, wouldn't it be better not to go out with sunburn? Like, wouldn't it be better to start without having sunburn? The problem is the entire population in that analogy has sunburn, and they're worried about what sunscreen should I use. And the answer is don't have sunburn when you go out in the sun. I think that. It blows my mind. So our entire model in our office is optimizing your health as much as possible when it comes to lifestyle and, and, and exercise and sleep and diet and nutrition and chiropractic care and everything else. So that, that's our model. And our patients feel better protected Not that they're not in a war, because not. I'm not saying this virus doesn't exist. It does. But you're more likely to have a positive outcome if you've taken those corrective steps. And I think that's the message going forward for all of these offices is, how do you get healthy and stay healthy? How do you get healthy and stay healthy? What can I do? And there is an abundance of our population that doesn't have the knowledge or the practical application at their fingertips to get healthy and stay healthy. And that's where we need to go as a healthcare profession.
0: Yeah. And and I I think the medical profession is going to double down on their, on their model, not because they, they, they choose to. I mean, look, the medical model before this was uh, we're going to react to disease as it happens. And that's fine. I mean, we have a model that's really based on uh, it it was a model that was started with acute disease communicable disease. So we're going to react to what we see. Um, and we've shifted now from acute disease to chronic disease, and they're still using that kind of come up with a pill or a vaccine for the chronic pro- problem, that mentality. And we've, we can have discussions for hours about why that's mistaken. But now that the COVID-19 crisis has occurred, the, the, the ramp up and, and the, um, the response to this is going to be dramatic in, in waiting for, for the next one. Uh, we're going to train an army of clinicians and nurses and, and hospitals to handle the next crisis. And it's going to be a warlike or military style ramping up of resources. And our profession is just poised to say, all right, they got that because people are going to need that. But what we're saying, you can't ignore anymore.
1: So when we try and we try, we try. We try to bridge the gap. It's ironic, too, now because we're seeing less patients come in saying, hey, I I have a little bit of fatigue and I've gained some weight and I'm not sleeping well, so can you help me? And so we had to morph to the needs of the community at the time. So I'm a big fan of we serve. We, we, we We don't have jobs. We serve our patients. We serve the community. What the community needs right now is a little bit more fire protection. So ironically, the people who have run from our office, meaning the other allopathic healthcare care providers who used to mock and laugh and make fun of what we do and poo-poo it, they are running to our office. Today and tomorrow and every Saturday in the foreseeable future, we are delivering high-dose vitamin C IVs to emergency care doctors and emergency care nurses our lines are full. We're doing it at a, and they are running. The hospitals refuse to give it to them and they know it's good for them and they know it helps uh, increase the probability of recovering and preventing this. So they are running at record numbers and they're starting to say, huh, your model is the right model going forward. Now, Again, if you're in a fire, you need to have a heavy fire retardant suit. So that's the crisis. But that says maybe I should be wearing some of this protection every day of my life before the virus comes. So I think one of the benefits that's going to come out of this for our office, and of course, we want to pay it forward to every office that we can reach, is you can reach out to some of these healthcare providers who didn't think this way before. But only because of the crisis that we're in were we able to break the ice and bring the two worlds together. They're still going to have to handle. They're still on the front lines dealing with people that aren't breathing and are dying for many reasons. But they also need to get themselves healthy enough to protect themselves against that kind of onslaught. So if we dial that down and say, we want to get healthy people healthy so they don't need to be in that front line as much, then we're starting to bridge that gap. So that's a benefit in a horrible situation.
0: No, it's a huge benefit. And I, and I think that ultimately, we have to clearly work together. I just think there's going to be coming out of this, a, a tremendous need for people who do what, what we do and have the knowledge that, that we have, because that is just not going to be, you know, it's, it's gonna, there's going to be a dichotomy, there's going to be firemen, and you know, it, just to go back to the analogy, I wish I, I could remember who who made this analogy up, but it really is, um, it, it really works. So if your house is on fire, the fire department comes and they use certain tools to put the fire out. Uh, they're going to use a fire hose and an axe, and they're going to you know hack through the walls. And then what you have is a saved house. You save the life of the house, but you know there's smoke everywhere and 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 you know holes in your walls and. Water filled into the cavities, but who are you going to call the next day to get your house, your house back in peak shape? You're not calling the firemen to come with the axe and the hose. You're going to call contractors and, and, and carpenters and, and artisans and a whole different profession is going to come to bring your house to where it was. You're not going to use the same people. So if if the people you go to when you can't when your pulse when when your oxygenation is 50 percent and you need a ventilator of some sort, those are not the people you're going to go to to kind of work on that diabetes that that gave you a, a pro-inflammatory state that caused a a you know a, a cytokine response that might have been you know over a, a exuberant to fight a to fight a virus. Um, so so that's where. Again, I, I believe practices like yours, practices like, like mine and our profession in general, really need to amp up their, their skill set, their knowledge. We need to understand ant- antibodies, not because we're going to be necessarily treating disease. We have to understand the science right, of how things work in order for us to make the recommendations that, that we make.
1: Doesn't it make sense as well? So the fire comes, the fire department comes, they put out the fire. You called your remediators, your smoke-damaged people. But don't you learn from that when you rebuild? Maybe you use drywall that doesn't burn as quickly. Maybe you use some fire-retardant that will actually uh, keep your house from burning more. That's why in commercial construction we use metal studs instead of wooden studs. So smarter preventative measures as well as corrective measures after the incident occurs. I think out of this, and we've talked about this for 100 years, we should be, practices like yours and mine, should be the first line. The escalation clause should be when you escalate, and right now, for many people before this crisis, and even now, they it's either do nothing or they're right in the frying pan. It's do nothing, do nothing, do nothing, standard American diet, standard American lifestyle, standard American stress, standard American toxicity. You get sick, and now you're jumping right to end stage diseases and, and you're, you're going, you're bypassing all of this. We should be first line. And then we should be humble to say there are times where there's escalation clauses where if, I've said it for 25 years. If my arm is ripped off in a car accident, don't take me to my chiropractor. Don't take me to my functional medicine doctor. Don't talk to me about diet and lifestyle nutrition. Give me the best crisis intervention. Now, that doesn't mean I shouldn't have been educated to avoid the accident before it happened. And it doesn't mean I'm not going to need a lot of lifestyle management after they put my arm back on. There's a time and a place for that crisis intervention, but that is a small, small piece to healthcare. The greater piece is don't get in an accident, and if you do get in an accident, how do you recover from the accident? I just think we are on the forefront. We should be on the battle lines determining to patients scientifically, how can we maximize your potential? How do we maximize your potential? Listen, it's done with athletes all the time. You've worked with high, high-level athletes, professional athletes, Olympic athletes. Um, they don't. They don't say, "Well, I feel pretty good, so therefore I'm okay." They're they are dialed in to physiology. They're dialed into athleticism. They're dialed into diet. They're dialed into sleep. They're dialed into stress. Um, th- why is it that the highest level athlete gets to have their lifestyle managed optimally, and the rest of us get sixty percent?
0: so we want to be on that line to say hey let's get you there well you are there and 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 i want to go back into a little bit into your practice there because what's remarkable is that your practice is in a area of pennsylvania that's considered rural uh it's it's uh it, i i think the average income of the people who come to you is pretty modest. Uh, I, I've been to your practice. I see who comes in there. And I also know that uh, the majority of the work that, that, that you do is self-pay. Uh, pe- people pay a very fair price for an extraordinary service. Uh, and these are people willing to make a financial investment into their health. Um, but, you know, we're not asking insurance companies to, to pay for the services that, that that you're providing, at least for many of the services that that, that you're providing. Um, yeah, for none of this. So it, it's it's nearly 100% out, out of pocket.
1: The only thing that we still participate in any insurances is, is Medicare for chiropractic adjustments. And that's kind of, we've chosen to do that as a service for the elderly patients for their benefits. So we'll take on Medicare patients for adjustments. Now, if we only did that, we would not be having this conversation because that'd be in another profession, right? So I would, I would, that doesn't pay the bills. That's kind of like Medicare reimbursement for, for chiropractic care. Let's be honest. It's charity. <laughs> it's, that's us being charitable. Um, but other than that, there's not a single covered service in our office and we have 11 providers. And I think I, I personally still have a six month wait list. So people are dying for this. Now it's a fair service everywhere I lecture all over the country and internationally. They all say you should raise your prices. You should raise your prices. And maybe I should raise my prices. Maybe there's some validity to that. But we do a fair service for probably an extremely fair price. Um, and this is just—we're not asking the insurance companies to reimburse. We're not trying to to milk off the system. We we are saying this is what people are willing to pay out of pocket that their insurance plans don't cover because they see the value in getting healthy and staying healthy.
0: And and we're saving the system, let's be realistic. I mean, uh, you and I have had extensive discussions, as we will in the future, about how to deal with, uh, you know, diabetes and how to deal with lipids and how to deal with all of these things that can be reversed, right? M- much of the chronic disease environment is reversible.
1: And let me jump in there, because you you and I talked about doing this long before COVID, right? So um, it's our schedules didn't match up and, you know, the opportunity... but. We were talking about, let's talk about a deep dive in lipidology. Let's talk about a deep dive in sugar metabolism. Let's talk about a deep dive in adrenal health. Certainly something you're brilliant at and and I'm involved with is the brain, right? So brain health and functional neurology, and, and both of us are functional neurologists. And we wanted to go into deep dives into chronic, how to get the chronic patient better It's just that this has trumped everything we talked about because it's coronavirus, but we have so much knowledge, not to be arrogant, to share with our fellow healthcare providers and also the patient community at large. Um, We want to get into those topics. Those are the things we want to get into. Let's discuss lipidology. I hired a a nurse practitioner who worked in uh, cardiovascular health and and the, the heart center at Hershey Med. And we went in, I parlayed out our, our, I had a patient come in and we did our whole lipid panel and I said, do you have anything to add? She goes, Oh, don't kid yourself. There's no cardiologist doing those panels. Nobody's looking at it like that. That's like advanced lipid studies that nobody's even aware of yet. That that gets into looking at mechanisms, the mechanism of health, the mechanism of wellness. So I am looking forward to moving past this COVID and really helping those people who are forgotten about because the, the, the magnifying glasses on COVID and we're missing the comorbidities of diabetes and heart disease and obesity and insulin resistance and all the things we're talking
0: about. You know, I'm, I'm going to send you the link to the website for the New York uh, st- statistics. It's actually impressive. And they list the 10 comorbidities and they, they're not adding any more to it, but the, the top 10. And so far for the last three weeks, the number one is hypertension. Number two is hyperlipidemia which means excessive uh, you know, lip, lipids or, or cholesterol, let's say, in, in your blood or triglycerides. And that's number two. Now, we, we, we hope that we can get deeper into the data when this is all said and done, because your question, and I know you're thinking this as, as am I, is it the lipid issue or is it that they're on lipid medication? I'm very curious about that. Is there something meaningful there? You know, And, and again, uh, the, the medical profession is not going to eat its own. Uh, they're not going to take an industry like statin drugs and then say, well, you take statin drugs, maybe there's an issue with the next virus that comes along. And I don't even know that to be true. What I'm saying is I find it interesting that hyperlipidemia is number two on the comorbidity list. And most of those people are taking medications because they listen to their doctors.
1: Let me go down another diatribe for a second. So somebody asked me to do a like a, a two-minute description of COVID virus. And this was my description. See if it's accurate because I'll bounce it off you, right? So you have a ball. Inside the ball is RNA, right? That's where we see the RNA. The ball is made up of lipids, fats. Out of the ball, there's little spikes. They're your spike proteins. So that's when you see that picture of those red things sticking out. It looks like a ball. Inside the ball is RNA. So... The virus doesn't have a copier machine. It doesn't have the ability to replicate itself. So it infects us. It goes inside our cell. It hijacks our copier machines and replicates itself. It makes a bunch of itself. When it does so, it will replicate the RNA inside the ball. It'll replicate the spike proteins, okay? It has no ability to replicate the facts. It has no ability to replicate that. The ball is made out of lipids, there's no way to replicate those lipids. So what it does is it hijacks the lipids that we have. So the difference between you getting the virus and me getting the virus it the same spike proteins, the same RNA on the inside, but it comes out of your body based on the lipids you have. It comes out of my body based on the lipids that I have. So the individuality of this virus is based on the individual that it hijacked the copying machines for. So I found that incredibly interesting. And then I did some studies on omega-9 fatty acids, and they're saying that reduces the inflammation with different coronaviruses. So I, just, I just think that's fascinating. I don't know if that resonates with you. And then so the, and then, just to finish the story then, so we replicate a bunch of viruses. It takes over the cell. The cell ruptures. And then it releases all the viruses to infect other cells. Then the immune system sees it, and it says, holy crap, Go get the recruits, and that's the cytokine storm. But the individuality of that is not the spike protein and not the RNA on the inside, but it's the lipids made in the ball.
0: Now, before that cell breaks open, so here's, um, I'm going to push back a little bit on understanding this. Uh, before the cell breaks open and releases the virus, it, it's ready to go. It has its lipids. It has its RNA. It has its spike proteins. It's, it's packaged and ready to go which means the lipids it got came from within the cell, not from outside the cell. We always think of hyperlipidemia as excessive lipids floating in the river, which is the bloodstream, but this is outside of the river, on land, in the cell, and the truth is every cell in the body except for the testes and and the adrenal glands can, can produce more than sufficient amount of lipid. Uh, or cholesterol for itself to use. So I don't know. I don't know if hyperlipidemia would confer more access to lipids, uh, for the virus, or if there's just plenty in every cell.
1: I don't know the answer to that either. It's a question that I posed. I don't know the answer to that, but is there some mechanism by which cells, because pro- cells do produce their own cholesterol except in the, Test these adrenal glands i don't know if the eyeball does i was i don't know but i know the adrenal glands don't but the adrenal glands will require they, they only make their hormones from cholesterol coming into the cell into the adrenal gland but does this does the cell produce based on its cellular milieu right the stew that it's in does it produce different lipids based on the environment that it's bathed in in other words that cell is bathed in some stew Which may alter what lipids or cholesterol it produces. I don't know the answer. Okay, so but my my thought is, if every cell is producing its own cholesterol, and that cell is producing cholesterol based on the environment that it's in, if it's in an unhealthy environment, it may produce different lipids than if it was in a healthy environment, and that's going to determine the structure of that COVID.
0: 'll also de- determine how well your immune cells can recognize and attach to the virus i I would assume it would have some impact on the immunology. I have no idea how I'm just again thinking out out loud that if you have you know we always talk about lipids uh the the milieu of the of the lipids, so if you have certain types of lipids are very fluid which would make the receptors In that lipid layer, you know, uh, a lot more easily accessible. Whereas a unhealthy lipid environment is very rigid and stiff, and we know this to be true. That certain types of fats, you know, let's just say fried food, is going to give you the kind of fat that is very rigid, and therefore your receptors are less likely to interact with their environment the way they should. Uh, So, uh, the, the questions are endless.
1: I think the membrane fluidity may play a role. We're don't. we
0: we're not asking the question.
1: We're saying, should we go on a respirator or shouldn't we? Like, well, maybe we should ask the question. So I think, I think in the future we'll get into deeper dives into those type of topics rather than our asses on fire taking care of COVID. We're going to try and get back into uh, how, do, how, do, how do we help the chronically ill get better because the chronically ill – it's a crisis in healthcare, but it's not the crisis of the day for you. It's the chronic, I don't feel good. Itis that we have to get asked
0: by the way. Let's, let's just put some numbers to this. We know, we know that, uh, there's 85 million people with diabetes and prediabetes. That's nearly, that's basically 25% of the American pop- population. We also know that, uh, upwards of 70 percent of those don't know they have it staggering. staggering so so this is bigger this is walking into everyone's office this is walking into every chiropractor's office this is walking into every uh acupuncturist office anyone who's who consider themselves a health coach this is walking into your office wh- whether you are measuring it or not and it goes to as is
1: autoimmunity right autoimmunity third some i it went from 23 and a half million americans to upwards of 30 million americans have an autoimmune disease and it's estimated 10 times that number have autoimmune reactivity or pre autoimmune disease so that's somewhere north of 20 or 250 million americans so if you combine that with the diabetes epidemic it's better it's a better chance they're coming in with these issues than not to every office for every problem. So it's important to have some cursory information, some cursory knowledge of this subject. So you can manage what you can manage and escalate out what you need to escalate out.
0: And you don't need necessarily need to know all the nitty gritty detail that you and I love to, to, to have so much. Uh, and and we, we do like to geek out on that stuff, because that's who we are. But we know that you know, lifestyle management is something everyone can get involved in. And you don't need to be a, a research scientist to, to, to figure out what, how to sleep better, how to exercise more and better, uh, what foods are going to be best for you. Sometimes there's testing that you can do that would kind of di- direct things, but th- that's what offices like ours are for. And I, I think we started this conversation, uh, at least in a previous conversation you and I had, my, my dream for our profession is for an office like yours to be in every metropolitan area in the country because all of the other offices, all of the chiropractic offices, all of the people work, working with you know, low back injury and, and people who are working with uh, general health and wellness for entire families, they can handle 90% of anything that walks into their office because we have number one, a great education uh, we, we, you know, have, we're we're primary portal of en- entry providers. Our licensure allows us to do so much for our patients. We're handling 90, 95% of what comes into our office. That 5 to 10% need to be served. And if there was an office like yours in every metropolitan area that we could wor- work with, that would be a great kind of hub and spoke type of uh, um uh, service that could be out there. So I, I hope somebody out there listening who has the background in education that, that you have is listening to this saying, yeah, I need to be that office. You know, uh, I need to have that le- level of, of uh, volume so that when we see changes in the research, we can apply those changes to 100 people this week, as opposed to one or two. Uh, and the data collection could be massive. So you, can you tell us a little bit, Chris, about your practice and about, uh, you have 11 clinicians. Who are they? What do they bring to, to the table? How do, how do you guys work together?
1: Great question. and I'll answer that, but I want to kind of parlay on your, on your previous statement. One of the greatest satisfactions I have in the office is when a patient is referred to me by a fellow practitioner and they're saying, I took care of the 80 90% that I knew how to take care of. Can you just help me with the last 20%? And I am able to sit in front of a patient and really build up the previous clinician to say, you're only as good as you are based on all the work that you've already had done by the brilliant clinician before me. So I am not here to say, Look how great I am. These idiots didn't know what they were doing. I only get to do what I do because they were able to get them as far as they did. Then I maybe, if I'm able to fix that last 10, 15%. And by the way, then I say, go back to that brilliant clinician and continue your care. Like it's not a, it's not a refer to me and, and divorce that person. It's come to me, let me put the finishing touches on it and go back to them and continue to manage your care. So that's my greatest joy in the office. The patient got better, and I was able to refer them out of our office back to the other healthcare provider to continue their wellness program. It's a beautiful thing. So our, our office is, is kind of unique. So um, we have uh, four chiropractors. Two, two of them are chiropractic neurologists. Uh, one is MAP certified, which is pediatrics, pediatrics, um, General pediatric specializing in autism and uh, neurobehavioral disorders. We have internal medicine, a um, uh, medical provider uh, who's a family, med- or not family, it's uh, internal medicine, so t- ages 12 and up. We have a nephrologist who's also boarded in uh, nephrology as well as uh, internal medicine. Um, we have He's semi retired, but we keep him around. He's kind of our resident elder. Uh, He's a pediatric oncologist and as well as a pediatrician. So um, we keep him on. We have two family nurse practitioners who are boarded in family medicine so they can do family medicine. We have uh, two massage therapists. We have an acupuncturist. We have a lifestyle health coach. We have two of those certified health coaches. We have hyperbaric. We have the pulse mat. We have uh, um, even—I'm sure we have—we have two full-time IV nurses. We do IV vitamin nutrition therapy. Um, Gosh, I'm sure I'm missing something, but off the top of my head, that's what we have. So I I don't. And so and so, what happens is we all get together. um, We would love to do it more, but we wouldn't see patients. And so we'll get together when there's a case that's fairly straightforward we will uh, we'll take care of it ourselves. But we get together. Every month, we have dinner for four hours. And we try to, every week, have roundtable discussions. So uh, we try to, every week, have a roundtable discussion where uh, everybody sits down, we present a case, we go over a case, and we all try to benefit. We dig into something. This is where... We try to poke holes in the care to figure out why the patient may not be getting better as quickly as they could. This is where, for example, I might get on the phone with you, and same vice versa. Like, what am I missing here? What might be going on here? Um, So it's a great collaborative effort. And I have gotten to the point in my career where I'm okay saying, I don't know. So if I have an advanced case Of kidney disease. I'm not saying I need to know what this is. I'll walk down the hallway to my nephrologist who was at UPMC for 40 years. She knows kidney physiology better than I ever will. Why would I try to take that on myself? Right? Why would I try to take that on myself? One of our family nurse practitioners has done family nurse practitioner in the field for 17 years. She's great with skin lesions. Somebody comes in and says, What do you think this skin thing is? I'm gonna walk down the hallway and say, you look at this. I don't know what this is. Um, and more often, as often, I have not seen this. You know, Chris, you have 25 years worth of functional uh, health. Tell me what you think of this presentation of these 13 or 17 blood markers that are out of range. What does that whole complex look like? And how do we put those pieces together?
0: You know, what, what I love about your office, too, is that you just mentioned that you have the nephrologist, the pediatric oncologist, internal medicine, and the chiropractors, and uh, they're all trained in the Turnpaw method. So it's not like they're, the nephrologist is practicing nephrology. They're, they're, they're bringing their experience in nephrology to a case that is uh, that, that may have advanced kidney disease. But for the most part, the majority of the work that is being done in your office is using the term turnpaw method. They're just bringing their special sauce to the table. Um, and that's huge.
1: They would all sit with me for a minimum of three months right next to me. Um, but what I said to all of them, don't forget what you learned before you came here. Bring that with you. So bring that nephrology background with you. Bring that family medicine background with you. And one of my clinicians who started recently said, I want to be as good as you one day. I said, if you're as good as me one day, you suck. Because what you should be is you should be standing on my shoulders and way better than me. So you want to take the knowledge that I have, combine that with the knowledge that you brought to the table so that you're better. So yeah, everybody who's trained with me for a minimum of three months. Plus we have collaborative time all the time, uh, every week and once a month for a long period of time. And so in addition to that, I want them to bring their skills. So, yes, our nephrologist practices, for lack of a better term, the turnpaw method, right? We're team turnpaw. So it's not my name. It just happens we would label us. So we're all team turnpaw using the turnpaw methodology with additional subspecialties around, beneath, above, whatever you want to say that. So you're getting your functional care from the turnpaw method on team turnpaw. And then in addition, if you need a subspecialty, we try to patch that in.
0: And and by by the way, the Turnpaw the method is it really what you're saying is there are foundational principles that the practice is built on. And those foundational principles do not belong to Chris Turnpaw. Those foundational principles actually came from Life University, where where you were given this understanding that the human body is a self-healing, self-right regulating system that does always exactly what it's supposed to do and is in a in, the most incredible, adaptable. Uh, machine <laughs> to have ever, ever been created. So, uh, I, I would say that what you've been able to do is layer everything about the turnpaw method on top of that foundation. And, and it's, everything is informed by that. And that's been my observation being in, in your practice and, and really the way that I run my practice. So, um, Chris, we're, we're, we're going to uh, bring this interview to an end. But uh, we got, like we said last time, we got a lot more conversations to have. We got a lot of bigger fish to fry than than this measly virus. We got to get involved in in you know the metabolic health of all of our patients, but also our the patients for our profession. They're listening to this. They're loving this. They're gobbling it up. And uh, by the way, uh, before I I close it off. You said before that you you have uh, your your team will get together for a dinner for 4 hours and you'll have round table discussions. But right before this crisis hit, you had scheduled for next weekend an event in Allenberry in Pennsylvania at a little resort and it was going to be a a a tight uh close, you know, you you had a, a, all of your practitioners were going to pre- present a the lecture. There was going to be a small number of practitioners there. I just couldn't wait for that event to occur because I knew the value was going to be in the having breakfast together in between the sessions, sitting in the hallway and conversing with each other. Is there any update on that event and if it's uh, going to you know, happen anytime in the near future? Yeah. So thanks for bringing
1: that up. Great shout out. I was so looking forward to it as well because I wanted to get the rainbow of presentations. So 11 different presenters, and then it was going to be the first annual. So we want to do it every year. I will tell you uh, not to blow sunshine up your backside, but you were first on our list the year after that. We want to bring in other clinicians to bring in, again, it's not my ownership of the human body. It's everybody collaboratively working together and to foster that We were going to have these 11 lectures, 45 minutes, time in between, hallway chat, which is where a lot of the learning happens, breakfast together, dinner together. We rent a room to have dinner together, lunch together. We had labs there. We had most of the supplement companies there, a lot of collaborative effort. Everybody put their ego aside and said, listen, we're here for the betterment of the profession where we can all learn officially in the classroom and unofficially in the hallway. And a great shout out to Allenberry, this little resort but it's amazing it's uh, right on the yellow breaches beautiful great uh it's a third ranked trout fish fishing stream in the country horseback riding all this kind of stuff well naturally they closed because they can't be open uh and then there was talk of doing it virtually but that defeated our purpose It, it doesn't get people together and like minds together in a room where you have a conversation humbly enough like i'm a I've been that person intimidated to ask a question because I didn't feel my knowledge was right. But if I could just be on the periphery, I could pick up a lot. And then to, to see that the person in this case, me putting it on doesn't have an agenda. doesn't have an ego. you can ask me, Hey, what is a red blood cell versus a white blood cell? Fine. You can ask me, I don't know what any of this means. Great. We all had to start somewhere. So just to allow people, you know, I I say when I teach and, uh, you don't have to be better than me, and you don't have to be as good as me. You just have to be better than you were yesterday. You just have to make improvements every day and try and sharpen that saw every day. So we shut it down. Uh, we had 50 clinicians coming. And, um, but, but we're in a limbo stage because we don't even know when to reschedule it because we don't know when Allenberry is going to reopen. You know, We don't know if the end of the summer is going to be a better time, if next year is going to be a better time. We're in such a limbo. I know I'm dribbling on. I'm so frustrated by this virus because we're on the edge. We, you, me, and our entire profession collectively, we needed to conquer these comorbidities before this epidemic came. And we need to conquer these comorbidities after this epidemic is gone. So it's just frustrating because I feel like we're on the verge of a mushroom of, of knowledge and sharing for these people. So to answer your question, <laughs> I don't know when that's going to be, but I'll be sure to get it out. Uh, the, the greater interest we have, I can make it a weekend. I don't care. I just want to get, I want to share.
0: What's the nearest airport to Allenberry?
1: Harrisburg. So it's interesting too. Harrisburg, Harrisburg International Airport. Come on now. HIA, Harrisburg International. So Harrisburg Airport. And what we have is we had actually um, the local uh, Mercedes dealership and, and Volvo, or not uh, Mercedes, Audi, BMW, it's all owned by one person, Sun Motors. Uh, and Dan Sutherland was going to allow us to use his cars to shuttle people back and forth for free to the airport and back, to the airport and back. And for families, we had deals with Hershey Park because Hershey Park is, you know, 25 minutes away. So it, we tried to make it a family-friendly, um, so you could fly right into Harrisburg We'll pick you up. We'll drop you off. It's a resort. There's hotel rooms there. We had a customized food panel menu for, for everything. So
0: And it was dirt cheap. Oh my God, we're
1: giving it away. We're covering the cost. What was it, like hundred and sixty bucks or something?
0: It's like hundred and forty-nine dollars. Um so so I'm I'm gonna let everybody know that we'll let you know when this is gonna, gonna when this is gonna be uh, rescheduled for sure. Uh, and, and I can't wait for it because it's going to be great. And what you said before about, you know, you're frustrated because of the virus, but somebody had said to me earlier that, uh, this is, this is, might be our greatest gift. And sometimes before you can leap, you have to squat, you have to squat down so you can explode forward. And I, I believe the comorbidity conversation. Yeah. We didn't take care of those comorbidities before this, but man, we are going to be ready to take care of them after. And I think I want to make your event the first one that actually addresses all of that uh, for, for people who, like, like you said, who want to know more tomorrow than they know today. Thanks, Chris. I appreciate your time. Uh, we'll, we'll talk uh, soon about what to do next uh, as far as these in- interviews go. But consider the Turnpaw uh, interviews a, a series of interviews. I
1: love it. I learn so much every time I talk to you,
0: Steve. Great being with you. Love you, buddy. I'll talk to you later. This podcast is for general informational purposes only and does not constitute the practice of chiropractic, medicine, nursing, or any other professional healthcare service, including the giving of chiropractic or medical advice. No doctor-patient relationship is formed. The use of this information and the materials linked to this podcast is at the user's own risk. The content of this podcast is not intended to be a substitute for professional chiropractic or medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Users should not regard or delay in obtaining chiropractic or medical advice from any chiropractic or medical condition they may have, and they should seek the assistance of their healthcare professionals for any such conditions.